Um, okay, so we're going to look at verses 10 through 20 in Ephesians chapter 6. So let me read those and we'll get started. So give your attention as I read God's word. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 10, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints, and for me, that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Coffee is a good thing, by the way. So here you have it. This is really the final meaty section, if you will, of Paul's letter to the Ephesian church, um, as indicated by the word finally. Now, when Paul says finally, you got to be careful. He doesn't always mean finally. <laughs> uh, Philippians chapter 3, uh, if you know Philippians, that's four chapters there, and he begins chapter 3, so he's halfway through the book, and he says, finally, my brethren. And then he goes on for two more chapters. Okay, So beware of apostles like Paul when they say finally. Beware of ministers when they say, in conclusion, <laughs> uh, because it may not always be the conclusion, right? You know, I've heard ministers, hopefully I'm not guilty of this, but I've heard ministers say, in conclusion, and then they, you know, it's like the plane is coming down for the landing, and then it's like, oh, now we're going to go up and we're going to keep going for a little bit more. Um, but anyway, Paul here is, this is his final, finally, um, as he brings this great letter to a close. Now, Last week, well, no, not last week, two weeks ago, because last week we had the conference speakers here. Two weeks ago, we finished um, the household code in Ephesians. So that section that really begins in chapter 5, verse 22, and goes all the way through chapter 6, verse 9, where Paul looks at household relationships, husbands and wives, parents and children, masters and slaves. We looked at that. And as Paul is expanding on an expansion, right? All of this is about the worthy walk, which we see in chapter 4, verse 1. And when you get to chapter 5, verse 21, where he says, submitting to one another in the fear of the Lord, then from chapter 5, verse 22, through chapter 6, verse 9 is, well, what does it mean to submit to one another 
uh, in the fear of, the, uh, of God. Well, it's for wives to submit to their own husbands, for husbands to love their wives, for children to obey their parents, for fathers or parents to not provoke your children, but to nurture them, for bond servants to be obedient to your masters, and for masters to not abuse or uh, provoke your servants. So he's finished with that, and now Paul is going to conclude this letter by talking about spiritual warfare. Now this is, at least in the New Testament, this is probably the most condensed, uh, expansive portion of uh, New Testament teaching on spiritual warfare. It's, it's mentioned in other places as well, but here you've really got it kind of expanded where Paul uh, looks at the metaphor of a soldier of a Roman soldier and his equipment. And from that, he launches into a, uh, a, a lengthy teaching here on spiritual warfare, on, on being prepared for your spiritual warfare, on how to equip yourself for the spiritual warfare. So that's what we're going to see here uh, in these 11 verses uh, this morning. And the overarching theme for this morning, of course, is that God, through Christ, provides us the resources we need for spiritual warfare. That God, through Christ, provides us with the resources we need for our spiritual warfare. So I've got it in three points uh, this morning. Uh, typical, usual Trinitarian formula of three points. No, this is not Trinitarian, it's just three. Um, this, the sermon this morning is going to be in five, so don't, don't get excited. Uh, but here you have our battle, our equipment, and then finally our lifeline. Our battle, our equipment, and our lifeline. So first let's look at the battle that Paul uh, outlines here in verses 10 through 13, where again he concludes by saying, finally, my brethren, so he's speaking to Christians, right? He's speaking to the Ephesian believers. He's speaking to the recipients of this letter. Finally, brethren, what's the command? Be strong in the Lord. Be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Now, you don't see it in the, in the English here so much, but in the Greek, it's, it's he, well, maybe you do kind of see it here a little bit in the English, but he's being like overly redundant. It's like be strong in the strength of being strong, you know, or be mighty in the, in the might of his might. Uh, it's, there are three words that are used here that are synonymous, that speak of power, that speak of strength. Now, this command here is it's another one of these interesting commands that Paul likes to throw at people where he says, be strong. Be strong. That is, uh, again, to kind of geek out in technical, you know, uh, Greek language. It's a present passive imperative. It's a it's a it's a command, but it's given in the passive voice. Be strong. Uh, if you remember, passive voice means that you are receiving the action. You are not the one giving the action. Um, he uses the same structure in chapter 5, verse 18, where he says, be filled with the Spirit. That's a passive command. It's, it's be filled. It's let the Spirit fill you. So let the Lord strengthen you here. Be strong in the Lord. Be strong in the Lord. So it's not our own strength. Right? We're not to, all right, I'm saved. I've got the fire insurance. I'm going to go run out there and battle. No, it's be strong in the Lord. 
and in the power of his might, in the strength of his strength, or in the mightiness of his strength. The word for be strong in the Lord is that word that speaks of inherent power, uh, dunamai. It it speaks of a power, an enabling. And it's, it's an enabling that comes from the Lord. And then it says, in his strength, with his might, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Look at chapter 1, verse 19. Chapter 1, verse 19, where Paul here is praying for the Ephesian believers. And he says, um, he wants us to know certain things. What is the hope of his calling? What are the riches of, his, of the glory of his inheritance? And, verse 19, what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power? And then he's going to go on and say, that's the power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the heavenly places. So the power that raised Christ from the dead, that ascended him to the right hand of God the Father Almighty, that's the power that Paul here is saying is working in you. That is the power in which you are to be strong. Another place where you see this is in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Um, 2 Corinthians chapter 12 where Paul talks about his thorn in the flesh and in 2 Corinthians 12 verses 9 and 10 after praying, pleading begging with the Lord to remove this messenger of Satan this thorn in the flesh that has been afflicting Paul Paul prays and he gets an answer from Christ and says my Grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. And then he goes on and says, I will boast then of my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. I take pleasure in infirmities and reproaches and needs and persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then uh, I am strong. So Christ's strength in him. Christ's strength in Paul. So Paul's like, all right, I don't have to be strong. I just have to sort of recognize that without Christ, I am weak, I am infirm, I have no strength in me. But that's the point where then he comes in and fills that gap, where he comes in and fills that need that I have to be strong. He strengthens me in the power of his might. Psalm 18.2 talks about how the Lord is my strength. The Lord is my strength. He is my strong tower. You think of Joshua, when Joshua was about to conquer the promised land, right? He's, he's worried. He's kind of uh, probably a little bit, uh, okay, what's, how, what's this going to go on? Moses is dead. Moses has been leading this people for 40 years. I've just been kind of like his second in command, right? You know, now I have to take over. And the Lord in chapter 1 of Joshua says multiple times, he says, fear not, Joshua. Be strengthened by me. Fight in my name. You are strong in the Lord in the power of his might. The strength of the Lord is found, of course, as we're going to see here, in the armor that he provides and we'll look at that in a moment but if you're still in 2 Corinthians uh, stay there (laughs) but turn back to 2 Corinthians chapter 6 
2 Corinthians chapter 6. I'll start in verse 1, where he's, Paul here, uh, 2 Corinthians, of course, a very personal letter. Paul is defending his ministry to the Corinthian church because there are those there that are um, talking bad about him, kind of deriding his ministry, saying that he, you know, he look at him, he's in prison, he's been beaten, he's, he's a weak apostle. He has, you know, look, you, know, you just look at him, his physical stature. He's short, you know, probably has some kind of eye disease, we're not sure. So he's talking about his ministry here in chapter 6, and he says, We then, that is Paul and his fellow workers, are workers together with him, Christ, also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, In an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We give no offense in anything that our ministry may not be blamed. So he's, he's defending his ministry. But in all things, we commend ourselves as ministers of God in much patience, in tribulations, in needs, in distresses, in stripes, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in fastings. Does that sound like a strong ministry leader there to you? <laughs> it's like, I commend my ministry to you in all of my troubles, in all of my tribulations, in all of my distresses, in my beatings, in my imprisonments, in my labors, in my sleepless nights. Verse 6, by purity, by knowledge, by long-suffering, by kindness, by the Holy Spirit, by sincere love. Verse 7, by the word of truth by the power of God, by the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left. Paul knew where his strength was. And it wasn't in his physical stature. It wasn't in his ability to proclaim the gospel. It wasn't in his mighty oratory or his commanding presence. It was in by the word of truth. It was by the Holy Spirit. It was by the power of God. And it was by the armor of of righteousness on the right hand and on the left. Later on in chapter 10, verses 3 through 5. I'll start again in verse 1. Chapter 10, verse 1 of 2 Corinthians. Again, defending his ministry. Now I, Paul, myself, am pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in presence am lowly among you, but being absent and bold toward you. But I beg you that when I am present, I may not be bold with that confidence by which I intend to be bold against some who think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. So again, he's defending himself against his detractors. And he says here, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not Carnal. They're not fleshly. They're not of the flesh. But mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments in every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought captive, uh, into captivity to the obedience of Christ and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. So Paul's like, look, again, I may be weak. I may be feeble. You may think that I, I'm not bold when I'm with you, but only in my letters, which was another criticism he got. But he's like, look, I'm not fighting the same battle they are. 
I'm not fighting against flesh and blood. I'm not fighting against, uh, you know, uh, popularity and things like that. He's, he recognizes, look, my warfare is a spiritual warfare. My weapons are spiritual. They're of God. My warfare, my fight is against arguments and against everything that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. So the strength of the Lord is found in the armor that he provides. And because we are to be strong in the Lord, Paul then commands us, you can go back to Ephesians, he commands us to put on the whole armor of God. Verse 11, the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. So that word there, whole armor, it's one word, panoplion. Uh, you may, if you're familiar with English words, you hear the word panoply. The, the, the entire suit, okay? It's, it's not put on one piece. It's not put on three out of four pieces. It's put it all on, okay? If you're a football player, you're not going to go without your helmet or your shoulder pads or your cleats or your knee pads or your thigh pads or all those things. You need it all. You need it all. And even when you have it all, you still get injured oftentimes. But it's like put it all on. Put on all the armor of God. We need spiritual war uh, resources to engage in spiritual warfare. No one goes into battle ill-prepared. That is a recipe for failure and disaster. And he uses that same word there. When he says put on, it's the same word that he uses in chapter 4 when he says put on the new man. Put off the old man. Put on the new man. Chapter 4, verse 24. Same thing in Colossians 3.10. Put on the new man. Put off the old man. Put on the new man. Put on the whole armor of God. So we are to put on the whole armor of God. It's just another way of saying put on Christ. It's another way of saying put on the Lord Jesus Christ. As Paul says in Romans 13. Where he says, the night is far spent, the day is at hand. This is Romans 13, verse 12. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and in drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ, equated with the armor of light, and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. Put on the armor of God put on the Lord Jesus Christ. They're similar thoughts. And it's the spiritual warfare uh, resources then that enable us, where you see again that word, that you may be able. That is the same root word as be strong in the Lord. So when you put on the whole armor of Christ, you are now enabled. You are now given the power to stand against the wiles of the devil against the wiles of the devil that were the methods that's the methodios it's the methods of the devil and and to be to be sure the devil's got wiles okay the devil has uh, tactics that he uses we're going to see that in a moment but against the wiles of the devil so you put on this warf you put on this armor so that you can stand so that you can stand against the wiles of the devil. Again, our, our warfare is not against flesh and blood. 
as we see here in verse 12. Same thing, same thought Paul pulls out of 2 Corinthians 10. We do not wrestle, we do not agonize against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. He uses this language earlier where um, in chapter 2, verse 2, where he talks about how we were once dead. Uh, we once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air who is now at work in the sons of disobedience. This idea of principalities and, and, and uh, rulers and, and um, uh, spiritual hosts of darkness. These are demonic um, hierarchies, if you will. This is language that is used to speak of demonic hosts that he's, he's talking of here. The principalities, the powers, the rulers of darkness against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. If you remember our time through Daniel and our time through Revelation, what we see going on here in the world is just a reflection of a greater spiritual battle that we do not see with our eyes but it's testified to us in scripture. There's that scene in Daniel, we've, I've referenced this before, but in Daniel uh, chapter 10, where he prays and he's, uh, you know, he's waiting for an answer to his prayer and he waits three weeks and you find out later that uh, the angel comes and says, I wanted to bring this answer to prayer to you three weeks ago, but I was hindered. And it's like, well, who the heck can hinder an angel? Well. A demon can hinder an angel. And he says, but Michael came and, and he, we, you know, together we beat back uh, this demonic uh, uh, entity that, that had hindered me. Now, you hear this talk, and it kind of sounds like crazy talk, right? <laughs> we live in a very highly secularized uh, society, so to talk about demons and spirits and angels and stuff sounds like crazy talk. But Paul here is saying, look, that is the warfare that's going on. That is the battle against which you need to be prepared. Uh, it's not against flesh and blood. It is not against the people in this world. Spiritual warfare is against spiritual foes. It is against spiritual foes, against demonic spiritual activity. And the only way then to stand firm is to take up the full armor of God. So he repeats the command in verse 13. Take it all up so you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and then having done all, to stand. The church of Jesus Christ is in the world, it is not of the world, and it stands to reason that our warfare is of a spiritual, not a physical nature. Right? So just as you saw Joshua and his armies conquer the promised land, we are not to take up swords and shields and conquer the nations. We are to conquer the spiritual forces that are work against us with the spiritual weaponry that God provides for us. So ultimately, our enemies are not unbelievers or homosexuals or transgender people or feminists or any other thing that irritates us whenever we turn on Fox News or the, open up the newspaper. They are not ultimately the enemy. 
It is the spiritual forces that lie behind those lies. It is the spiritual forces that, that blind the people of this age to follow the lie rather than the truth. I don't have this reference down in my notes, but it popped into my head. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. So we keep going back to 2 Corinthians. Second Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1. Paul, again, talking about his ministry, says, Therefore, since we have this ministry, the ministry of the new covenant, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded. Who is the God of this age? Satan and his forces. That's why it's a little g. Okay? Satan has been cast out uh, of heaven, but he still roars around this world like a roaring lion, seeking those whom he may devour. He has blinded the eyes of the people in this age so that they believe the lie. What lie? Well, all the lies. <laughs> all the lies that stand against the truth of Scripture. Who has blinded those who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is in the image of God, should shine on them. And he says, we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves, your bondservants. Uh, for it is God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who is shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So ultimately, our battle is not against people. It is against the world, the flesh, and the devil. We need to know who the real enemy is in order to fight the right battle. The right battle. We need, if you're going to fight the right battle, you need to know who the enemy is. And the enemy are, is not the people out there. <laughs> They're the mission field. <laughs> They're the ones that need the gospel. They're the ones whose minds and eyes are blinded to the truth. All right, if I don't get onto our equipment, we're never going to get finished here. So let's move on, verses 14 through 17, and look at the equipment that we have here. So he says, okay, so our battle is against the spiritual forces. Against, it's, a, it's a spiritual warfare. You need to stand in the power of the Lord and in his might and put on the whole armor. What does this armor look like? Well, Paul here describes it. Uh, in verses 14 through 17. And the metaphor he uses here is that of a typical Roman soldier. So the, the, the pieces of armor he pulls out are what would uh, be common to a Roman soldier. But again, the importance is not the metaphor. It's not the image. It's what these pieces of armor represent. Right? It is what they represent. So Paul had commanded them to stand. That word there, stand, is to, to establish, to be set in place, to be firm and immovable. Right? As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, be steadfast, be immovable, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. And he says again, put on the whole armor. Then he repeats in verse 14 the command, stand, stand therefore, having girded your waist, with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. 
Now, Paul is not just making up this idea of spiritual armor, but he is drawing on images that you see in other places in Scripture, particularly the Old Testament, and mostly from Isaiah. Paul was an Old Testament scholar. And he quotes Isaiah a lot. And a lot of these things you see are allusions to things you see in the prophet Isaiah. So when he says the belt of truth or having girded yourselves with truth, we see that this is the word of truth. We'll, we'll look at this in a moment. But uh, the armor here, these are the resources. These are everything uh, that we need in the battle. And we have to recognize this is his armor. Okay, these are his resources, not our resources, not our truth, not our, not our righteousness, not our uh, readiness. It is the armor that he provides is his resources. So we are to gird our waist. We are to wrap around. <laughs> All right, so the imagery here, now you may have some translations may say put on the belt of truth. Okay, yeah. The imagery here is more like gird up. You've got to be ready to run. You've got to be ready to march. Right? Roman soldiers would have been dressed in a, we would say a, a skirt, but uh, it would have been like a toga of some, of some sort. right? And in order to run, they'd have to wrap that stuff up and tuck it into their belt. They'd have to literally gird up their loins. So you're, you're girding yourself. And if you're going to get ready to fight, you need to be able to fight with the truth with the truth. Isaiah 11, verse 5. Uh, you could just note these references down. I'm, I'll just, but I'll read them for us. Uh, Isaiah 11, verse 5. Here speaks of, this is the righteous branch of Jesse's stump. Righteousness shall be uh, the belt of his loins and faithfulness the belt of his waist. Right? This is speaking of Christ, right? Because he is the way, he is the truth, he is the life. It is his truth that we gird our loins with. It is his truth that we then march forward in. And similarly with the breastplate, the thorax, the, the thing that guards your heart is righteousness. And it is not our righteousness. It is the righteousness of Christ that is imputed to us through faith. Again, Isaiah 59 Verse 17. Again, if you want to flip there, you're more than welcome. You can just jot these references down. Isaiah 59, verse 17. Talks about the Redeemer who comes out of Zion. He says, he, For he put on righteousness as a bless, breastplate, or a breastplate, uh, a breastplate. He puts righteousness on as a breastplate, and we're going to see this in a moment, and helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance for clothing and was clad with zeal as a cloak. He put on the breastplate. Righteousness is his breastplate. We see the same theme in uh, 1 Thessalonians 5. Put on righteousness, the breastplate of righteousness, and the helmet of the hope of salvation. Again, we are to, it's not that we are not called to have a practical righteousness in this world, but it is not our practical righteousness that's going to guard our hearts. Right? If you were to look at your life and, and look at your works and look at your uh, righteousness, you'd say, Ugh. Right? This is not very good. 
So you need your heart guarded with the righteousness of Christ imputed to you. So it's his truth. It's his righteousness. Here you have, uh, now he moves on to verse 15 and talks about our feet being shod with the preparation or the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. Oftentimes it's like having your shoes fitted with the gospel. No, it's having your shoes shot, you're shod with the readiness or the preparation that is rests on the gospel. Okay? The gospel is the foundation. Our readiness, our preparedness to go forth in battle is resting on that foundation. Isaiah 52, verse 7, which is quoted in uh, Romans 10:15, again talking about the servant of the Lord. It talks about how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who proclaims peace, who brings glad tidings of good things, who proclaims salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Your feet are prepared. They are ready. They are, again, uh, the, the shoe that would have been worn by a Roman soldier would have had uh, nails on them to be able to you know, uh, get some purchase on the ground so they can stand and be ready to battle. The last thing you want when you're in a battle is to have your feet slip, right? <laughs> you know, again, going back to a football metaphor, um, there's an old story uh, from the 40s when the Bears were really, really good. Uh, and <clears throat> there was, um, they were playing in a, in a championship game and they knew the field conditions and they had the shoes that were ready for, for that. The visitors didn't have those shoes, so they were slipping, sliding in the mud. Where the bear, that's why the Bears were able to run up the score. I think they won that game 73 to nothing, which is still a, uh, a championship game record. But they were prepared. They were prepared, and we are to be prepared. We are to stand upon the foundation of the gospel. We are to have the beautiful feet that bring the good news to those who are in darkness. This is the, rock, the solid rock of Jesus that Jesus talks about in Matthew 7, not the shifting sands of man's opinions. And then he says, against the fiery darts of the devil, verse 16, we are to take up the shield of faith, the shield of faith in order to quench these fiery darts. Now, Satan's weapons, our doubts, our lies, are all kinds of deceptions, right? He's, he's a cunning enemy, but his, his repertoire is somewhat limited, right? Doubt, lies, things of that nature. Uh, from the garden, right? The, the first words out of the serpent's mouth to Eve in the garden, hath God said. And then he begins to twist. And then he begins to just outright contradict what God has said. The first words out of Satan's mouth when he tempts Jesus in the wilderness, hath God said, are you really the son of God? Are you really the son of God? Why are you out here in the wilderness, hungry, starving? You could do it. Just turn the box in the bread. You know, so doubt, deception, lies. But they're, they're effective. What's that? They're limited, but they're effective. Yeah, yeah, not, yeah. Like I said, they, they are they are very effective. 
He doesn't, that's a thing, you know, that's probably the thing. It's like, you don't need a lot to, to fool us, right? <laughs> right, you know, again, to borrow from a football metaphor, it's like, okay, you know, we have three running plays. It's run to the left, run to the right, run up the middle. If you can't stop them, well, we're just gonna keep, you know, doing it, <laughs> right? That's when Nebraska was good, right? Run to the left, run to the right, run up the middle. It's like, who can stop you? First John 5, verses four and five. How do we fight against the wiles of the devil? You need faith. He uses the, the you know, flaming darts. Think of arrows being shot. And if you're going to block arrows from a distance, you need a shield. You need a shield. Uh, in here, in 1 John chapter 5, he says, uh, whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. What is our victory? Our faith. He who is over, he, who is he who overcomes the world? but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. How do you defeat the wiles of the devil? How do you defeat the fiery darts of Satan? Believe that Jesus is the Son of God. 1 Peter 5, verses 8 and 9. Here he says, Be sober. This is why we need to worry about the, the devil. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Oh, wow, that's, that's, that seems tough. How do, you, how do you fight that? Verse 9. Resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. How do you resist the devil? Faith. Remain steadfast in the faith. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, before God. You've got the shield of faith. So you've got the, the belt of truth, or the girding up your loins with truth. You've got the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of the preparation of the gospel, the shield of faith. And then he goes on, verse 17, take up the helmet of salvation. The helmet of salvation. We've got to guard our head, our minds, we need the helmet of salvation. We looked at these already. Isaiah 59, 17, 1 Thessalonians 5, 8. He talks about the helmet of salvation. The hope of our salvation guards our minds, guards our souls. Hope is not, again, it's not an empty expression of something you wish would happen. It is the earnest expectation of something you know will happen. And if you have the hope of salvation, it's, it's what Jesus will say in other contexts when he says, why fear those who can destroy the body? He says, who sh whom shall you fear? Fear him who can destroy both body and soul. Right? Well, how do, you, how do you save your soul? Well, you trust in the Lord. You trust in the power of his might. You rest on the hope of salvation. You know, it's Psalm 27, right? You know, the Lord is my rock and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Right? Whom shall I fear? If the Lord is on my side, if I have the hope of salvation, whom shall I fear? And then he goes on with our sole offensive weapon. Everything so far has been defensive, right? Girding up your loins so you can move. Uh, having your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel so you can stand firm. Having a breastplate to guard your heart, a helmet to guard your mind, a shield to guard against doubt. And he says, what's your sole offensive weapon? It is the sword 
of the Spirit or the Word of God. He says it's the Word of God. It is the Word of God. Uh, many passages I can turn to, but the one that I really just want to focus on is in Hebrews 4.12. You may have this as a memory verse. I'm going to turn to it so I don't misquote it. The worst thing you can do is you know a verse, but you don't know it all by heart, or maybe it's a different translation. So you know, it's, better than, it's better just to read it than to misquote it. But here, uh, the author says, the word of God is living and powerful, and it's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The sword of the spirit, the word of God, it is, the, it is the weapon that comes out of the mouth of Christ when he returns. Right? And that, that's the imagery that is drawn out of Isaiah 49, verse 2, and Revelation 1, verse 16. The sword that proceeds out of the mouth of Christ, it is the word of God. It is a very powerful weapon. All these spiritual resources are the tools that God gives us to aid in our spiritual battles. He provides them. We have to take them up. We have to put them on. Again, Joshua, the Lord tells him, be strong in the Lord. Joshua, fear not. I am with you. So did jo what did Joshua do? Did he just say, okay, I'll sit back and just watch you take over? No, he fought. He fought knowing that the Lord was on his side. When, when, uh, when they disobeyed the Lord, right, after, after conquering Jericho and they stole some of the, 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 the um, abominable uh, items, what happened? They lost the next battle. And then when they took care of business, then they won the battle. You can't fight a battle without equipment. Spiritual warfare requires spiritual equipment. This is the Lord's armor. We engage in the spiritual battle with the equipment that the Lord provides. And if we try to substitute any of the pieces of this equipment with any of our own equipment, we will fail in the battle. This is the Lord's battle. We need the Lord's equipment. Finally, to bring this to a close, so I'm, I'm saying finally, right? So now you can time me. Start your watches. Uh, verses 18 through 20. What's our lifeline? Okay. You've got the battle has been defined. So you've got the, you know what you need to do. This is a spiritual warfare. All right, what do we do? Well, you got to, first of all, you got to equip yourselves with the spiritual equipment. Now, what's your lifeline? Prayer. Verse 18. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit. Being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. And for me that utterance may be given, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that, I, that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. And again, you know, don't throw those verses away, right? Because, you know, okay, we're not talking about equipment anymore. But it brings the, 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 the argument back around to the spiritual warfare. Why do you pray so that Paul can then engage in the spiritual warfare like he needs to? So we can engage in the spiritual warfare like we need to. That he may make known the mystery of the gospel. That's the warfare. 
That's the warfare. It's not taking over the culture. It's not taking over the reins of government. It's not trying to make Christian movies and Christian music. I mean, those are all fine. It's proclaiming the message, the mystery of the gospel. Remember, 2 Corinthians 4, the God of this age has blinded the minds of those who are in darkness. So what is the, the solution? It's not take over the reins of government. <laughs> it's not more Christian movies. It is proclaiming the word of God. It's proclaiming the gospel, the light. Sorry, I'm getting worked up. And again, notice the redundant use here. Praying with all prayer and supplication. It's like praying with prayer and prayer. Just like be strong in the power of his might. It's praying with all prayer in, in supplication. So in all kinds of prayer, supplications, uh, uh, all, the, all the kinds of prayer that you have here. Uh, petition, supplication, thanksgiving, uh, praise, with all prayer, all kinds of prayer at all times and all situations. And this spirit here is not meant, it's not like code for like in ecstatic utterances. No, it's in the power of the spirit. Romans 8, 26 and 27, where uh, Paul there says, we often don't know how to pray as we ought. So the spirit then speaks with words uh, that we cannot hear groanings too deep for words. And he exhorts us to be continual and fervent with all perseverance, being watchful. That, that's the same word that Jesus says to the disciples when he prays in the garden. He says, wake up! <laughs> be watchful! The flesh is weak. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Be watchful. Wake up. Be diligent. And we pray not only for all the saints, but especially for ministers of the word. That's why Paul says, pray for me that I may open my mouth boldly. So if I may make a shameless plug here, pray for me that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. Paul on multiple occasions asks his readers to pray for him. And it's, notice his prayers typically are not Oh, pray that I'll be released from prison. Pray. No, he's like, uh, the Lord's got that under control. Pray for my heart. Pray for my boldness. Pray that I will speak when I need to open my mouth and be bold. So we are in a war, beloved. I feel like Patton at the beginning of the movie Patton. Right? <laughs> you know, I'm not going to be as crass as Patton was, Lisa's George C. Scott was. That's a great opening scene, by the way, one of the best opening scenes in all movies. It's when Patton's up there talking about, but we're in a war. We are in a war, beloved. The moment you came to faith, you've been engaged in spiritual warfare. The moment you came to faith, for your heart, for your soul, for your mind. In our, and again, as I mentioned earlier, in our highly secularized culture, the concept of spiritual warfare seems like superstitious mumbo-jumbo like crazy talk but that's exactly the way the enemy wants you to think he wants you to think that's crazy that's insane that's stupid talk no no we need spiritual resources to engage in the spiritual warfare there's no other way to fight these battles no other way to fight these battles the world the flesh and the devil are formidable foes and we need to be 
mindful of the fact that we are in a war. We need to stand in the strength of the Lord. We need to have his equipment. And we need to take up prayer fervently with all prayer and supplication. And again, the good news, beloved, is that in Christ we have everything we need. We have everything we need in Christ to fight the spiritual battles. We have his armor, we have his word, we have his spirit, and we can stand firm in the power of his might. Why? Because Christ has won the battle. Christ has won the battle. John 16, 33, right? In this world you will have tribulation. Beloved, take heart. I have overcome. Not I will overcome. I have overcome the world. One final passage. And I'll bring this to a close. But 1 John 4, 4. I believe that's the passage where John there says, Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Yes, we have a, a formidable enemy. We have a formidable enemy in the devil and his minions. But 1 John 4, 4. John here is encouraging his readers. You are of God, little children. You are of God. Why? Because you have overcome them. Because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. The Holy Spirit is in you. The Spirit of Christ is in you. Take up his armor. Fight the battle in the power of his might. All right, we'll stop here. Uh, next week.